Right, welcome to uh, the second of the Cisco Technology Podcast from the, the Cisco UK team. So for those who don't recognise me, I'm Justin Woolen. Uh, and you can contact the, uh, the podcast via Twitter or via email. So on Twitter, it's at Justin Woolen. Or on email, it's, at, uh, it's justin.woolen at cisco.com. Uh, so two O's and one L. So today, we're going to be um, talking around Wi-Fi. So I've been, I, I asked one of the uh, guests to join us today. It's Mark Jackson. Hello, Mark. Hi, Justin. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, okay. Um, so my name is Mark Jackson. I'm a, an information assurance architect uh, working across our public sector operation. What that means in real terms is that anytime anybody has a question about uh, anything relating to CSG, anything relating to product certification, um, people utter the word impact level three, my name usually gets uh, thrown into the mix uh, and people call me. So. <laughs> what do they call you though? Well, <laughs> We'll have a conversation about that later, I think. <laughs> uh, and we also got the uh, our resident producer, Lucas. Hello. Lucas is going to be our um, our layman. He's not a technical fellow, but he's going to make sure that if we're talking gibberish, if we are talking uh, Cisco code words, acronyms, uh, both uh, industry and Cisco, you'll keep us on the on the straight and narrow, and we'll have the old uh, the the buzzer coming in, or so you'll be our buzzer. Intro, the resident idiot. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say resident idiot. Resident idiot with a buzzer. With a buzzer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so there we go. So that's it. So this is. The, let's kick it off. So you mean Mark? You mean we've got a long history of working together, mm-hmm. and well, like, you know, I've not been at Cisco as long as you have, uh-huh. but I've come from a Wi-Fi background, and you I mean I. I and I'll talk about sort of the history of Wi-Fi, but the thing is about, can you give us a bit of perspective around sort of this code of connection, this big behemoth of what everyone talks about, the code of connection. Mm-hmm. I know it's changed recently as yeah. well, and it seems to be, it's changed a lot in the last sort of year or mm-hmm. so than it ever did in sort of the yeah. seven years previous that I'd been at Cisco. So could you want to give us a bit of a background on it? Yeah, sure. So, so... I suppose generically, a code of connection have the codes of connection have been around for a long time. They're not just a, a recent phenomenon. They they've been around because they're a way of saying, how do I sort of um, pass on a set a set of security responsibilities to somebody joining a shared thing. So, in, in simple terms, in in the PSN, in the public services network. The code connection was there. Well, we've got this shared environment that we want everybody to join, but we don't want the great and wash to join. We kind of want a minimum bar for everybody to meet from a security perspective to make sure that good things are done. You know, what we don't want to do is have somebody join the environment that is going to drag down the security of of the of the community. And the code of connection is a way of putting a set of obligations onto a connecting organisation to say you've got to do this good stuff. Um, the difficulty is is how that code of connection can be interpreted sometimes. Is it, is it, I'm just thinking about it now. I'm, I'm, is this more like of a government best practice? But is it with more like stipulations? But it is. These are the things. If you want to, if you, if you're as a government department, if you want to connect to the world, mm-hmm. even via a a, mm-hmm. a, a government network, mm-hmm. you we expect certain levels of good behaviour, best practice. Yeah. That, but we stipulate that you have yes. before we'll allow you to... Yeah, broadly speaking, it, it's a way of... Um, like I say, it's a way of setting a minimum bar in a way. Yeah, it's minimum um, standards. It, it's yeah. minimum standards, it, it, uh, but it isn't necessarily or shouldn't necessarily be government-specific. And this probably comes to a point we'll talk about later on as we, yeah. as we go through. But um, in the past, they often were government-specific, and that was part of the problem, is that... 
they were always uh, kind of quite heavily rooted in government speak, in the government way of doing things, which often led to those connecting organisations sometimes having to implement far more security than was necessarily appropriate for their environment. Can you give us an example of that? Because that's that's interesting, where they've actually gone beyond what was necessary. Well, the problem is, is that... You know, to make a code of connection applicable, it, it's got to be it's got to be universal. You know, it's it's got to be a common code of connection. And so, I mean, in the context of wireless, that was always the classic one: is that you know there may have been a, a code of connection control that said you will implement wireless in a particular fashion. Um, now, that might be fine for some departments, but not necessarily for all departments because their risk levels are going to be different, their business requirements and yeah. business objectives are going to be different. So, you can't apply. It's very hard to apply a common security control to, to the MOD and to the Department of, I, I don't know, Sport, Media and Culture or whatever. Yeah. You know? so, because they've got two very different business outcome objectives. Right, okay. So, so it, it's kind of hard to generalise a specific control. You know, thou shalt implement six levels of firewall. I think, so that, I think that, that sort of gets to the point, though, is why mm-hmm. we're here today. Yeah. Because it's always been very difficult... I speak to customers, and they, and especially when I'm talking to them around Wi-Fi, they'll, they'll be like, ooh, for example, AP12. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that we have to do it to AP12. And you go, well, AP12, just to, 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 to make sure I, I don't get caught out, is Architectural Pattern 12, which is it came from CESG, CESG yeah. around what they recommended wireless should, deployments should look like. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, so CSG produce a, a range of different guidance documentation from yeah. good practice guides, GPGs as they're commonly known, and architectural patterns, AP, um, uh, and, and they're designed as just good general guidance based upon a view from, from CESG, who are the, yeah. the National Technical Authority for Information Assurance. Uh, within the UK, so they're really there as a as a sort of guidance and advisory arm. So this, yeah, and, and because it was a guidance and advisors, it, it, it sort of sometimes we'd look at it and I'd go, that's just, just some of it didn't make sense to me. Correct. When you think there's inherent best practice out there that's mm-hmm. used by, and we'll talk a lot about that later on, but by the industry, and so I, I sort of, and I felt that it was something that was holding departments back because of that. Code of connection, going. Oh, I need to. Meet, I need to do this so I can make sure that I'm compliant. Than actual understanding what were they trying to do as a department? Right. What was the business need? Yeah. Yeah. What was that? What was the the benefit of using this technology? Mm-hmm. And then being able to understand that risk behind that, and then yeah. actually being able to put. I think we're, we're we're sort of going into the second part of what I wanted to get to, which is about people, process, and policy. Yeah. yeah. And. That was sort of the thing that I've never really quite understood, and hopefully by the end of this podcast, the people listening will go, you mean, it, it, a code of connection is there, mm. but how to get to it? Because it's changed a lot, though, hasn't it? It's gone yeah. very much from being very clear to, I know, from a, uh, the code of connection, I just said, you've got to be pen tested. It doesn't even talk about Wi-Fi anymore, does it? Correct. No, so, so and I think you, you kind of hit upon an important point, which is the, the code of connection... So, well, actually, there's a few points in there. So one is the the code of connection was often seen as a compliance um, outcome. Uh, And I say compliance in the sense that it was a bar that people felt they needed to meet. And that was it. That was security done. And and that's one of the big bugbears I have. And you know me well, Justin, that I have a number of bugbears. Um, uh, I soapbox on many different subjects, which hopefully will be the subject of future podcasts. But um, this particular one is that compliance doesn't equal security. 
Yeah. Um, you know, we see it all the time. PCI compliance. There's a there's one in the US called NERC SIP, which is a I can't even remember what it stands for. So don't. We'll, we'll, we'll let you in with that one. You get one free bus. <laughs> but NERC SIP is is related to the uh, I believe the power generation or power distribution space in in North America. So so power generation companies are expected to meet this compliance requirement. Um, but I heard it said by a, a chief information security officer uh, that I had a meeting with once that, that compliance is simply just a race to the bottom. It, it's, you know, I get to that bar and that's it. That's my security job done because, you know, that, that's my bar. Anything beyond that is then me just spending money after something else, isn't right. it? Okay, so, yeah. so that's sort of how the code of connection has been viewed as well is that it was uh, a lot of organizations took the code of connection, met it, didn't do anything more. So coming back to your point, it was never about achieving a security outcome or achieving a business objective. It was meeting a bar, and that was it. Yeah. Whether or not that bar actually supported the business in any way, shape, or form was kind yeah. of irrelevant because it was more about raising, raising that and raising that and meeting that okay. bar. Um, so the other point you made about the code of connection changing, I guess where it, where it historically came from within the PSN was that it was, I suppose, quite prescriptive in the sense that it was made up of a, of a series of controls that an organization would have to evidence. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean they would have to demonstrate how they were meeting that control in mm-hmm. quite a lot of detail. So the control might be, and, and the wireless one in particular, related to, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact wording, but essentially it said that you know the organization should demonstrate proper risk management and that the wireless environment should be deployed in line with government guidance. So immediately, if I'm picking that up and interpreting that, I'm going to think, well, what does the current government guidance look like? Well, that's architectural pattern number 12. Therefore, I must, to meet that control, I must do architectural pattern number 12. There's my compliance tick. Does architectural pattern 12 meet my business objectives? Probably not, but I've got a compliance mandate, so I'm going to go for it. Okay. Um, So that's interesting, isn't it? Because it was... Because before they, they, because I've seen that behaviour. Yeah. Let the customer they go. I've got, and you look at AP twelve, and you go, okay, but you've already got an infrastructure, mm-hmm. and you see, build a physical separate infrastructure just for Wi Fi. You're going, that's yeah. costly. Yeah. And, and you're like going, come on. I, you mean, we work for an IT company. We should be like going, oh yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. we'll sell you more more infrastructure and stuff. But it, you, your heart is going. Do you know what? You've already got. There's better ways of doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. For you, Mr. Customer, yeah. for this scenario. And like you said, there's going to be a, a, a times when actually AP12 is the right way for that customer. Absolutely. So, and we will, we'll, we'll continue to talk about that. And so, so for, from a, a Wi-Fi perspective, you know, I think there's a bit of a, it gets a bit of a bad stick from my perspective because yeah. everyone sort of has brought this history of it's insecure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and to be honest, I mean, when I was working in Wi-Fi back in 2003, Mm-hmm. God, I'm feeling old. Yeah, I was going to say you don't look old enough, Justin. <laughs> Liar. That's why I'm on a podcast and not on telly. Um, was you mean you like it was like open and I started on it was like frequency hopping, yeah, which is the same as Bluetooth. Yeah, yeah spread spectrum, yeah. same as Bluetooth is nowadays. Um, then it went to sort of WEP, yeah. which was what, you mean it was 64. No, it, it was, was a 64 bit and a 128 bit, and it was hideous and, um, and, and well crackable. And I and you could download. I remember downloading a disc off. I can't remember what it's called now. But a download in the district might have been mm-hmm. um, that you could actually work out how to hack it, and I and I and I'm not saying that I ever took part in hacking people's Wi-Fi no. networks, but I, I knew I could hack my own very easily. Yeah. Um, and then it was a WPA, yeah. and then it, it, which was a, just a hash of it. So there's been you know it's got a bad it because it generally was fairly crappy security. Well, it, it it was, but I think 
you know, in a way, it, it was bad because when you actually look at WEP, WEP stands for Wired Equivalent Privacy. It was never really designed to be heavily secure in, in mm. the way that we now believe, obviously, it has to be. Yeah. It was designed to deliver the same type of privacy that you would expect on a wired network, which, guess what, has no encryption on it. Well, because I mean, because you're relying on the physical security ability. Correct. Someone has to be inside my four walls to a- connect to it. Absolutely. And, of course, radio doesn't quite behave in the same way. You know, the wiggly lines go everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can pick them up half a mile away if, we, if we've got the right antenna. Yeah. Um, so... So I guess people realised pretty rapidly that that you know just doing a really crappy cipher, which was essentially which yeah. web was, just wasn't gonna yeah. was wasn't gonna cut it. And hence, very very quickly we went through a number of iterations of web, which was very crackable and cracked within two or three minutes. Even yeah. back in mid two thousand to WPA, as you said, and then more recently to WPA version two, which you know if implemented correctly. Because that's just in the encryption method, though, isn't it? Because the authentication is encryption and authentication, isn't it? So the encryption side has got to a level where WPA2, we can go 128-bit keys. Yep. Very, you mean, hard work to, to, to crack. Yeah. And then you, the authentication side of it, yep. which came in as well, which is, what, yep. .1x? Yes. Um, hopefully, I don't know, do I get away with that for being an acronym? .1x, <laughs> not at all. Right, basically, <laughs> what .1x is, Lucas, is, uh, just making sure I'm not talking, <laughs> is it's just... Um, I want a username and password from you. So before I let you connect to your network, so your Mac there will share your Active Directory username and password before the network will, the Wi-Fi will allow you on. So it's checking who you are first. It's actually who you are, who you are, your, ne- your username, password, and then what your vendor goes. Yeah, you're on, and then it encrypts everything. Correct. Okay. And what we have is there's more enhanced ways of doing that where you can put like certificates. So a certificate, electronic certificate, is just the an extra way to uh, prove that, that you are the person that... Oh, Mark's making funny faces now. <laughs> Mark, it's just so interesting to see... Mark, Mark, do you want to, you want to okay, take I was going to say, we might need a security expert to explain what a certificate is. Oh, well, then I'll be you then. <laughs> Since nobody else was available, I guess I'll give it a try. I mean, the certificate, in a sense, is a way of trying to and this bind... this is to Lucas now. Sorry, yes. So, so um, I'll turn around. It's not um, the turning around, it's making sure you explain so Lucas can understand. But some of our listeners <laughs> may not necessarily have <laughs> Some of our listeners may not have a full understanding of what a digital certificate is either, necessarily. But in essence, a digital certificate is a way of providing um, a, a sort of an identity that is is notarised, I suppose. And by that I mean, you know, your driving licence is a form of identity and it's notarised by the DVLA. Yeah. So I can pick that up. I know that DVLA are trusted to notarise that identity and I can see that the picture on, on, the, on that piece of identity is the same as you. They, therefore, I've got a way of proving that you are who you claim to be when you show me that piece of piece of uh, identifying material. And in a way, that's kind of the, the general yeah, purpose of a digital yeah. certificate. It's a way of saying, you know, cryptographically that I have some some means of identifying myself to an environment yeah. that is irrefutably mine. And it's, it's a bit like, I mean, everyone sort of, I remember I was reading the documentation around Cypher and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you can sort of like credit cards, isn't it? Or your bank card, isn't yeah, it? That's, you mean it's, it's a, that's a digital certificate. It is. It, it's the, on there is something that says that this is bank card is from yep. the bank that I'm yep. in. Yep. I, don't, I don't know if you get into branding or advertising because <laughs> there are many other banks out there. Um, but I know that when I put it in, I but I, I also provide a, a, a key to it as well, yeah, yeah, yeah. which yeah. In, in, with the certificate that's on that mm-hmm. card, I get money. Yeah. And it's the same sort of thing. Yeah. It's, it's a sort of... That, that's it's a, a robust... It's a robust... Identity and, and the reason we use it in, well, the reason we 
the reason we try to use it is that it is a very robust identity if implemented correctly. So actually, because of the cryptographic nature of the identity, it's very hard for me to steal Justin's credentials and try and pass myself Because that's the bit, is it, could, somebody could take your username and password and take this device, take an, another device, mm. jump onto the Cisco Wi-Fi yep. network, type, type in your username and password, and you'll go, that's great, you've passed the username and password, but yep. the device you're joining with is not, mm-hmm. doesn't no, have no, a no, certificate so on it. Two factor. Yeah, yeah two-factor, yes. Yeah. Something you know, something you know. He's a two-factor authentication. I know, I know. we should buzz, well. we should buzz him for that. We should, oh, <laughs> I had a buzz him, okay. yeah. <laughs> but, but no, coming back to your point, I mean, the, the, the thing about WPA2 is that you've got, as you said, a very strong cipher under, underneath that. So you've got AES-128 um, as the, there's the mm. encryption providing the confidentiality and the integrity protection of the data over the mm. air interface. So between the device and the access point. Yeah. So which is the bit that you're really concerned about because that's, that's the, bit the bit over the air. I think everyone can listen to, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, but, but you also need a means of access control to the wireless environment because I don't just want, you know, yeah. Joe blogs down the street being able to access my wireless. And that's yeah. where h2.1x and something called EAP extensible authentication protocol comes in to yeah. provide that means of challenging the device and or the user to connect to yeah. that environment and another thing we've been talking about for the last sort of five minutes or so mm. is sort of what it became industry best practice yes. isn't it yeah it has why so that where people and, and to the example where you look at AP12 where that was about VPNing over the Wi-Fi back to a a, a, a um, gateway, gateway yeah. VPN concentrator mm-hmm. was a way of going right I've now secured it on top of it and that was inherently where the first when wet was out that would be the thing of going people would VPN over the topic because it wasn't was inherently that's secure it was going right that's, that's totally understandable and it felt like we we had regressed yeah. slightly yeah. because you're going but actually it's fairly robust now yeah yeah, and I, I've not heard many instances. I don't think I've, I've not heard of any, and mm. I'm sure if, if, if there's any re- listeners out there who can correct me, mm. of people have hacked onto a fully secure mm. um, two-factor authentication mm. certificates, web, yeah. uh, WPA2 type Wi-Fi I, environment. So yeah. I, I, there's easier it's, ways because it's hard. It's and, hard, and, and, and the bad guys don't don't make don't want to make work for themselves. Yeah, Let's yeah. face it. You know, if I'm a bad guy. Uh, there are far more, far, far easier ways for me to get into an environment than than attempting to break into what is quite potentially quite a complex set yeah. of things, which ultimately might not deliver me what my end result is okay. anyway. So, I'm trying to move us on now because we, we've we've I think we've talked about sort of the history and the mm-hmm. reason why we're here uh, and our personal feelings on on sort of the, the way it works nowadays and the different architectural patterns. But the one thing that was really interesting that we, we've talked about previously, uh, Mark, is around sort of the, the that business needs mm-hmm. and, and risk tolerance yeah. and the interpretation of a, a code of connection mm-hmm. and, and what do people really need to think about and, and, and how how do they really if, if you've got somebody listening now is thinking, Well, I'm gonna I'm sort of maybe a I'm a, a guy working in the IT department in a government mm-hmm. place. I've got to deploy Wi-Fi, I'm thinking about deploying Wi-Fi, or I know it's coming. Mm-hmm. What are the types of things that they need to be thinking about? Well, I think, I think the first thing they need to think about is what, what's the business driver for them delivering that service? You know, what is it that's motivating them from mm-hmm. a business objectives perspective as to why they need it? Because once they understand that and they understand the scope of that service, you can then start to work out what is an appropriate solution. If you start 
with the solution first, then the likelihood is that that's either going to be over-engineered or under-engineered or too costly. You know, you, you're not, you, you start with the requirement. That, yeah, that's yeah. fundamentally, you know, we, unfortunately with security, especially in government, we, we often fall into the trap of not starting with a set of requirements. We, we sort of start with some hypothetical arbitrary label of data. We call that data IL3. Um, yeah, you know, and, and we somehow. And I'm sure you always got asked that. So I've got IL3 data. What do I do with that? Well, I, 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 I from, from what you what, said, what is that? Oh, sorry, I, yeah, here we go. Red, red, red buzzer. Um, so IL3 <laughs> is is a is, is terminology that, that that's been around in government for quite a long time, and, and the ILP stands for impact level, um, and it's a way of measuring in a, in a sort of qualitative way the impact to an organisation if data is lost. So there was an impact level scale from zero to six, where six was very low impact, six was catastrophic. Did sky you say six twice then? What's that mean? I thought you said IL six, and I, I went from sorry IL zero to IL six. Sorry if I've, I've misspoken. But no, so essentially you've got this graduated scale. the The reason it was brought about was to try and say, well, actually, risk management is risk management is quite hard because it's often not. Um, it's often not qualitative. It's, it's it's often quite intangible. So to be able to put some sort of measurement on the impact, you know, if I lose my if I lose these health records, what's the impact to my organisation? And the way of then, you know, kind of uh, codifying that then became impact level three. Um, the problem was is that became a shorthand for defining my set of security requirements, saying I've got impact level three data. Please tell me how to protect it. And again, this is another one of my bugbears. Um, which is, well, that tells me nothing. That tells me about the impact of the data if it's lost, or the impact of the organisation if that data is lost, not how to protect it. Um, so, for example, it doesn't tell me anything about what the threat actors might be, you know, who might be interested in stealing that data. You know, if I've got a foreign government who might want to steal that data, then I might protect my data in a particular way versus if it was a hacktivist or if it were a, um, an investigative journalist. You know, so so it's sort of switching that conversation around to actually say, you know, what's the business requirement, and then look at the data and the types yeah. of data, and then figure out who might be after that, what are their capabilities, what is the likelihood they're going to go after that, and, and building that into your thinking yeah. about how you then develop the capability. And it's interesting because we talk about risk tolerance as well. So it's what you, uh, which we've, which you mentioned as well, and it's the thing. We, we, I mean, it's, it's a common thing. From the last podcast mm-hmm. that we did, it was about this three-legged stool, or mm-hmm. I call it a three-legged donkey in the last one. <laughs> but because I'm sure there's a joke out there somewhere, and hopefully somebody will, will tweet we'll in find it. it. We'll tweet <laughs> in with it. Um, so, but it's about people. Well, it's people, policy, and process, yeah, isn't it? It is. And, and none of those things actually says about technology. But yeah. it's, it's it, so the example where, where we've talked about earlier on is of, for example, a um, child at risk register. Yeah. You mean highly sensitive, highly sensitive data. And, and how would you do that? But the thing is, though, who would be the user of this data? Mm-hmm. How would they be using that data? Where would they be using that data? Right. Uh, and what is the, 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 the process and the, and the policy that would go mm-hmm. towards that? Yeah. So, for example, you mean, so if you look to talk about like a social worker who would have access to this information, mm-hmm. yeah. what would be the, uh, so the, the business need, isn't it, is, is about they need to have access to, to information, to sensitive information to go and do their job. Correct. And where, where they would need access to that information. Mm-hmm. So if you say within the four walls, that's absolutely of, of, a, a, of a government building, government building whether yeah. it's, whether mm-hmm. it, wherever that may be, that's fine because there's physical security in the way, it's a protected environment. But then they go on the, out, out and about where the, where the actual need to do their job. Mm-hmm. 
So how is they? How do we en- enable them to have access to the right kind of information mm-hmm. when they're actually outside of those four walls? And is it necessary? And I think that's that sort of risk tolerance, isn't it? Well, it's, it's the risk tolerance. It, it, you know, again, firstly, it's it's what is the business motivation behind allowing them or, or the need for them to do that? You know, firstly, that ha- that question has to be answered. Mm-hmm. You know, do they actually need to have access to that fairly sensitive information in the field, so to speak? Yeah. Um, if the business has decided that that is needed then it's not the job of security in its broader sense to say mm. you can't do that. It's the job of security to say, well, how do we do? How do we enable you to do your job in the most secure way possible Yeah, to, man- to manage so that does, risk? So the, the interesting thing you said, the secure way possible. Yes. So if, I'm, if, if someone is a social worker and they're out and about with a mobile device mm. that enables them to... Uh, uh, do their job at the mm. point where they're with their with their with the with the citizen, mm. keeps them more productive, mm-hmm. and then they have the ability then to say, well, actually, there's what what how do we control that? How do we so? And, and the thing that comes out is about control points, and that's something we've talked about before. But it's about that the people policy process. So yeah. you have people. If you educate the mm-hmm. people, say right when you're out and about, you have sensitive data on you. You need to make sure that's not shared. It's done in a you, you need to be aware of it. Uh, it's very sensitive, and you, nothing you do, something you don't share. And if you've educated them, there's a policy that they've signed. It, it, yeah, I mean, it, it comes back down to it. Actually, it actually flows all the way back down to um, the the new government security classifications policy, which came out earlier. Uh, when was it? What were we in? Twenty fifteen now, aren't we? Yeah. So it was last year, last April, um, and and the government security classification policy um, introduced three new classifications of data. Um, so we had an old protected marking scheme which had six tiers of protected marking and yeah. you know, it was all fairly well understood. Um, that all shifted back in April of last year to introduce this new, um, in particular, introduce this new concept of official data. And without wanting to go into all the, the, the nuts yeah. and bolts of that, but one, one of the motivating factors of that was to try and get greater accountability for, for information risk ownership to individuals within government. It was to kind of say, actually... All data in government is sensitive. There is a duty of care and responsibility on everybody mm-hmm. to do the right thing. And, yeah. and I think, generally speaking, there's rarely malice when people are dealing with sensitive data. You know, often it's just accidental or it's they're trying to, oftentimes they could be trying to avoid a really bad process. Yeah. You know, which again is kind of comes back down to making security embedded and simple and straightforward because if it's not then people will try and find a way around it and that's where yeah. bad things start to happen most likely but it, it comes back down to that accountability so that individual who's accessing that sensitivity that sensitive data should be very aware of the sensitive sensitive nature should be appropriately trained um, you know educated etc around that then there's the technical controls that mm-hmm. then come in to support and enforce some of that yeah. policy and that sensitivity and that's that's the two sides that's always really important is that often when we're talking to technology people, we always go to a technology solution. Yeah. Oh my goodness, I must implement this widget, this nerd knob, whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? Sometimes you can't. Or sometimes that nerd knob might make this whole solution completely unusable. An IPsec VPN overlay, for example, yeah. might make an, a solution very, very unusable. So how do we manage the risk in that yeah. circumstance, well, we might be able to put a procedure in place, yeah. or we put auditing in place, or we put other yeah, other mechanisms around. Yeah. So, so technology isn't the answer to everything. Not, and no, as a technology cust- as a technology company, and, and on a technology podcast, that's com- you mean that's it, it's not. I mean, technology is great. Technology has a place in a lot of areas, but um, 
you know, oftentimes, again, this is this sort of the compliance argument, and I'll try not to soapbox too much, but, you know, we always talk about, uh, in security, we talk about the importance of auditing and logging things. Yeah. That's a technology solution. We log everything. How many people actually have a process in place to look at the logs? Yeah. Is there the logs are there, they just, and they kept. Yeah. Correct. It's a compliance level. Somebody says, I've got to log this. Right, great, fantastic. It goes yeah. off to some data warehouse that nobody ever looks at. It gets deleted after 90 days. Happy days. I'm, I'm sorted. That's my job done. Yeah. Actually looking at it every now and again is probably quite useful as well. So it's that... It, so, it, yeah. So it is important. So just to summarise that bit, so the people, policy, process, yeah. you've got all that then. And then you think of the, then you think about how is the technology going to help Absolutely. you enable that? Correct. And how can it help you have some sort of control points in there as well? And yeah. things such as, like, we, we've talked about uh, the identity services engine mm-hmm. before, yeah. which is basically a control point yeah. that sees all your different users coming in mm-hmm. and then you're able to say right who are you what device you're using where you're coming in from what what information you're trying to get access to mm-hmm. and then goes what's the policy say correct and yep. then if the policy says yes then mm-hmm. you get access to it Absolutely. the policy says no you don't and it's just a level of enforcement yeah. or a control point yeah because you can have access to so you could say um you're allowed information um uh inside the building you're allowed information when you're on your your authorized tablet device mm-hmm. when you're out and about but if you're working from your laptop at home mm-hmm. could, that could say no yeah. you can say no because that's, that's the way of doing it and again that rolls back up to understanding what's the policy in the first place it also rolls back up to one of the you know one of the fundamental I guess some fundamental security tenets which is the principle of um, need to know you know a lot of a lot of environments for ease of use are very very open you know once you've got your connection you can access everything yeah and that that you know you can you can see why people have done that in the past, but actually we need to start thinking about things in a different way. The, the difficulty was sort of you know ten years ago was actually implementing more granular control was quite hard to do. Um, it was complex. It was cumbersome to manage. With things like ICE, with the Identity Services Engine, um, and some of the other technologies that we've got around security group tagging and these kind of things, yeah, you can yeah. you can actually now today really start to define some high level business policy objectives, and and implement that really really simply in the network infrastructure. And more importantly, you can implement it in a dynamic way. So, depending upon as you say, what type of device, what type of user, what type of location, what time of day. Um, you know, should a social worker be accessing this type of record at midnight? No, not at all. Possibly not. I mean, again, it comes down to policy. But you could say, well, maybe not. Um, are they accessing from, you know, from a foreign country? You know, they might be on holiday yeah, and wanting to access it. You know what? Guess what? We'll geolocate them where they are and block their access to yeah. that type of date. So it's about, again, this rolls back up to that pre-thinking around the solution and not just jumping straight to, I need these boxes, wires, yeah. and widgets. And what, am I tra- yeah, what does my policy say? Mm. And what is their technology that is going to allow me to do that? And if it isn't... Mm then you've got to say we've got to put there's got to make sure that there's the procedure yep. and the policies in Absolutely, place yeah. and the training's in place with the people that, that, with yeah. the actual that, to, that to use that to manage it that to manage that and come back to your point earlier about risk tolerance you know can you get through those different elements of technology people process can you get to a point that you've managed the risk to an acceptable level yeah and and if you have fantastic crack on if you haven't then that's where that conversation needs to be had of, of sort of risk versus business mm-hmm. outcome in a way. And, and sometimes that's really easy in a, in a financial services organization because that business outcome might be increased customer loyalty, yeah. increased you know, staff retention, you know, all those sort of quite tangible business benefits. In public sector, it's sometimes a little harder to say what's, what's that business benefit of maybe allowing more mobile working for social care. 
Um, you know, it could be. But it's interesting because we're, we're seeing a lot of places. And in the last podcast, we talked about smart connected workplace. Yeah. People come more mobile, agile working, working from different locations mm-hmm. nearer to them, yep. sharing offices. Mm-hmm. There's business need because at the end of the day, it's about cost saving. Cost. Yeah. cost comes into it. Government needs to save costs. Yeah. So how do we do that? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so the business benefit there is going, well, if we disable our people to do that, we can't meet the business cost. Correct. Yeah. So there has to be that different level to the, yeah. and, and working out what bit can technology solve and what bit the policy and process yeah. can solve. Yeah. And I, also, I, I think, again, sorry to cut across, but I think one of the other important things is, is everything comes at a risk. Yeah, you know, but it's, it's how risk averse are you? It's how risk averse are you? And, and and again, this is sometimes I see when I'm with when I'm talking to my customers is that you end up with a situation where there is, I think, a perception that I've got to eliminate all risk, or that I've got to get to that point where the risk is so infinitesimally small that then I'll accept it. And, yeah. and the reality is, you can never really do that because if you if you start with that mentality. You know your tinfoil hat's on a bit too tight, then you're going to end up with a system that's. Not I don't even know what that means. Your tinfoil hat. Is a bit you know the, the you know the aliens. You know. <laughs> oh, your thoughts, right. You know, the, the sort of tinfoil hat. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of applying that kind of common sense. It, it, it's system. absolutely about that common sense. Yeah. It's about pragmatism, and in again, some of the buzzwords that CSG now use and government digital services use is proportionate security. You know, they even use the phrase "good enough security," which I'm not a great fan of. But the point they're trying to get across is that. Don't over-engineer this stuff. You know, um, you know. We talk about uh, the sort of architectural pattern twelve earlier yeah. in this IPsec VPN overlay that it advocates um, versus using WPA two. You know, if implemented correctly, how do I tangibly measure the benefit that an IPsec VPN overlay is going to give me? You know, it, it gets down to that point, and I try and articulate this to my customers, which is to say, right, okay, this solution. An architectural pattern 12 solution is going to cost you 30 to 50% more hmm. than a WPA2 approach to, yeah. to, to providing confidentiality and integrity yeah. protection of data in, across the air interface. Can you tell me, hand on heart, that you're going to achieve 30 to 50% benefits for that additional investment? In whatever measure you, you kind of make yeah. that, is it going to be? Is so, it going to reduce your cost? Is it going to reduce so your risk it, by that? Is the much? extra spend going to give you that proportional that amount of benefit? Of re- yeah, whether that's reduced risk, improved yeah. service, and the reality is, is that's often not the case. Firstly, yeah. it's very hard to, to measure, but also, you know, we are we're, we're talking about splitting hairs here with cryptography, and yeah. again, you know, there's easier ways to break this stuff. Okay, so we've. Um, I think we've done the, 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 the business needs and the, and the risk tolerance there. I think we, we've given that a good go. And one thing that always gets talked about is, is about guest Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and it's interesting. Uh, and so what, what's, what's, so people have looked at uh, guest Wi-Fi as like something that you go, right, it has to be physically separate. Mm-hmm. And, and I know from a, from a, a Wi-Fi and a, and a radio perspective, that can be quite challenging because if you've got two different systems trying to work in the yeah. same location as in I'm, I'm going to have guests at, at guest Wi-Fi and, yep. and corporate Wi-Fi mm. in the same location mm. that can be difficult because they're yep. inter- interfering the, the radio and, space yeah because yeah. the radio space yeah. so, and, and managing two separate systems seems a bit doesn't make sense to me so what would your, what were your what's your thoughts on that I, my first response when people say I can't put guest and corporate data on the same wireless infrastructure is I ask them why um, and, and I, I'd say that slightly tongue in cheek but explain to me what bad things might happen if I do that is sort of the approach that I try to take because you know I've been around Cisco for quite a number of years and I consider myself to be reasonably technical um, 
But, you know, what I try and challenge is, well, why can't I put guest and corporate data on the same? You know, what, what's going to happen? Yeah, walk me through the scenario of yeah. what will happen if I do that. And, and again, I could stick my tinfoil hat on and start to imagine all sorts of very strange scenarios of you know, things breaking or, or uh, vulnerabilities being exposed in particular products. But at that point, I, you know, frankly, I might as well just go home, lock the doors and never come out again because my degree of paranoia at that point is, is just off the scale. But the interesting thing is where you take your, your you go back to the people policy process yeah. and you just say, right, and I'm, I'm liking this, this three-legged donkey thing because it, <laughs> it keeps me focused. But if you just say, right, okay, guest access is needed. What's the business need? Well, we have visitors, maybe yep. visitors from third partners, party. yep. third-party yep. vendors. Yep. Uh, could be people visiting from other departments. Yep. And I know that's the way it's yeah, going. It's You're going to have these, yep. these, these hubs. And they go, it's really going to be benefit them working here. Mm-hmm. So, right, there's a business need there's for us to provide need. Wi-Fi. Yep. So, but where are they going to be connected to? Well, there's nothing internal. Mm-hmm. It's out to the internet. Absolutely. So the, big, the policy is you can have guest access, mm-hmm. but they'll only have access to the mm-hmm. internet. So... Yep. How can the technology enforce that? Is you mean through through the, the, the through, through um, industry best practice in a way of tunneling in t- tunneling your um, Wi-Fi access straight through the infrastructure straight out to the internet, and there will never uh, never the twain shall meet. Basically, yeah. Corporate and guests, which is which is which is a very widely acceptable approach in industry. You know, we at Cisco approach it in exactly the same way. You come to Cisco. You connect to the guest SSID um, on the wireless, and guess what? That's not a separate network infrastructure. Um, and, but the thing is that the policy in there as well is that it has to be done via sponsored guests. So it's not like right. it's open to everybody. No, no, no. They have to. I have to be sort of sat. Uh, you, you would have to be sat with me and go right. I'm going to give you just some and guest access. Yes. Put some, you put my name. So I'm sponsored. Mm, you're sponsored access. I'm yeah. sponsored access. So that's the way we put people policy and process in, yeah. and the technology just enables that. Correct. Yeah, and, and and you know we've we've taken the decision. I mean we're a pretty big organisation. We're not you know we're not massively risk averse, I suspect. But the point is, is that as a corporate, we're probably under quite a lot of attack on a pretty regular basis. I would imagine, much like any well, of our also, other contemporaries. They, they all say, isn't it? You've, there's there's two kinds of people out there, or companies out there. Those who know they've been attacked, and those and who don't. Absolutely, yeah. And, um, and and I think you know we we we've taken that decision because it meets our business need of providing access for our customers and partners and so on and so forth when they're on site, but it does so in a controlled manner. You know, again, it will be a combination of the technology enforcing that guest traffic mm-hmm. out to the internet. It will be a combination of monitoring that people actually look at. Um, and then the, the, the sort of human aspect, which is the policy around it, which yeah. is the you know, guest sponsorship from a Cisco employee and so on and so forth. Yeah. So uh, there's absolutely zero reason why in 99.9% of cases in the official tier of, you know, this new classified classification yeah. of data in public sector that guests shouldn't run alongside and in fact you know guidance that is going to start to come along from uh, from GDS and other organizations is going to start to suggest that this is absolutely perfectly excellent and, and that's really that's a really good point because I know we've, we've had some meeting with the guys from GDS and I know they're, they're rewriting their, their their new blueprint or their recommendations on on mm-hmm. Wi-Fi connectivity, yep. and uh, so I would I'd call out to anyone listening to that as well. Go go reach out to them; they're happy to talk to you. Mm-hmm. So go go reach out to GDS and say, can we have a look at your? Can you give us your latest recommendations? I know it's been uh, passed around now internally mm-hmm. uh, inside GDS to, for for, yep. for final mm-hmm. uh, proofreading, whatever. Yep. So it's really interesting, and, and so we've talked a lot about stuff today, and 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 the one thing about 
we've talked about is, is what's industry best practice. Mm-hmm. And I think there's places to go to from Cisco to our validated designs. Absolutely. I pretty much there from a wire perspective. Yeah. I think, in summary, it's about risk tolerance. I think it's about that business needs. Mm-hmm. Start with the business needs. Yeah. What's your risk tolerance? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that, that three-legged stool, stroke donkey, of, of that people policy and process. Yeah. And how, te- how can technology help to enforce that? Yeah. Exactly. And not start with technology first. Correct. And, and, and then yeah. that sort of makes sense to me. And yeah. it really has sort of changed my perspective of it. About, it always been like, how can technology answer all the needs? Mm. And at the end of the day, I don't think, and poli- it can't answer everything, no. but it has to start with your business policy first. It has to start with the business need. And again, this is, this is a, a mantra that's been coming from GDS and CESG over the last 18 months, two years, um, you know, as we've sort of transitioned to this new classification scheme where they've said, you know, always start with the business outcome first. You know, think about that because if your business outcome is not being met because of security, then security is not doing the right thing. And, it, and it's a cliche, you know, security should enable the business. Yeah. It shouldn't get in the way. Uh, you know, we've all seen that image of, you know, the, um, uh, you know, the, the security gate across a, across a road, but no fence either side, and then tire tracks in the snow going all the way around it. You know, that's the problem. If you put too much, if you put security in badly, or you put it in in the wrong yeah. place, or you put it in in a way that doesn't enable the user's workflow, you know, doesn't allow them to do their job, guess what? You know, users, we, we sort of tie users with this brush of being stupid when it comes to security. <laughs> They're not when it comes to trying to find ways around it. You know, yeah. People can get pretty ingenious. And that's where security problems often lie because you're not monitoring yeah. the fringes. You're not monitoring what people will do. Mm-hmm. Um, when they find that this technology doesn't support their business need, they'll start to do things in a bad way. You know, shadow IT and all these yeah, things. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's, shadow IT is this one thing. They'll just go away and do it or they'll yeah. start even emailing yeah. them their, their home accounts and yeah. sending information out of your business and, and guess what? that way. That's, that's far more risky to the business and exposes them far more greatly than, than does a properly managed, properly considered you know, industry best practice wireless yeah. guidance using all the things we've talked about, WPA2, H2.1X, uh, digital certificates yeah. um, and so on and so forth okay brilliant Mark thank you so much you're welcome. for welcome. contributing to the second Cisco Technology Podcast thank you Lucas for being the uh, the layman in the room oh, not the no idiot problem. and uh, people li- uh, listening to the podcast please contact the sh- contact us with the topics you'd like to cover so you can contact us at, uh, at Justin Woolen or via email at justin.woolen at cisco.com that's two O's and one L so uh, thank you very much Mark thanks Lucas and look forward to uh, speaking to you all at the next podcast